Welcome to Counterintelligence. This is Eric LeVay. Today's guest is investigative reporter Will Carlos. Thank you to Patreons Dana Berry, Andre Dunka, William Healy, Angela Jackson, Zacharias Ziskor Kaminsky, Sasha Millstone, Craig Pierce, and Greg Schneider. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence. Will Carlos, welcome to Counterintelligence. Thanks for having me. Will, it's so great to have you. I was wondering if maybe we could start by if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, Reveal and the work you do there as an investigative reporter specializing in extremism. Sure. So our official title is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. So the kind of parent organization is, is CIR, the Center for Investigative Reporting, that's been around for several decades. It's the oldest uh, investigative-only newsroom in the country, I believe, and um, was founded, I think, back in the 70s. Uh, we, a few years ago, started producing the one-hour-long radio show slash podcast called Reveal, uh, and we're sort of in the process of, I guess, rebranding. So our complicated long title is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, but most people know us uh, as Reveal. And uh, our show goes out on, I think, more than 450 NPR stations on a Saturday, I think mainly on a Saturday and Sunday, but it's also available uh, wherever you get your podcasts. So check it out, Reveal. That's fantastic. And I mean, are you also on the podcast as much as you're a reporter or do you split your time between the two? I mean, pretty much. I mean, the way it works for me is that I will work on investigations usually for several months until I, um, you know, until I produce something basically and then we will try whenever possible to make both a podcast and a written piece and in some cases a video uh story from it too so we have you know we have we have the whole crowd we have a, a, a tv and video unit that makes you know really good documentaries that um you know get get uh, finalists for oscars and things like that we um and then we have the the radio show slash podcast which you know wins just about a lot of awards for, for radio. And then we have our, our written work too. So we do, uh, we, we do the whole gamut. I think in this kind of brave new era of journalism, um, there's, there's no way of simply being a one, you know, like a one unit item anymore. You have to, you have to diversify and come out in multimedia. And I think one of the things that's also really important is that it's communication might not be the right word, but there's a lot of people it's it's hard to sit down the, the piece we're going to be talking about your three-part series about facebook but sometimes there's a reason why tv is like the most popular medium it's just more accessible in some ways and there's a when, when you can communicate an idea on television or even on a podcast i i've found sometimes that reaches people just in a more accessible way but what, what do you think about that yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I wasn't too into podcasts until I started training as a radio journalist about three or four years ago. And I was working actually for Public Radio International uh, down in South America. And I was I was a, a kind of foreign correspondent for them flying around South America doing stories. And as a result, got into radio and got more into podcasts. I mean, I, you know, I used to commute and I, when I commuted, I would listen to NPR. Now, when I commute, whenever I get in the car, I am selecting from about, you know, 10, 15 podcasts that I shuffle between. I'm not a huge TV news guy. I don't have cable. I haven't had cable for a long time. I will most often only watch a TV clip when somebody posted on Twitter, um, you know, or, or, or says, Hey, you got to watch this. Um, but I very, I don't ever sit down and kind of watch the nightly news. Um, 
but yeah, it's, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I personally, my, my news diet probably primarily these days comes from radio, comes from podcasts. And then I would say secondarily would be reading articles that people are linking to, uh, just checking the New York Times, Washington Post. And then also I use an app called uh, Pocket, which I don't know if people are familiar with, but Pocket's a fantastic app for whenever you see a longer form story that's something you really want to read that you want to kind of save in one place, you just like, you, you, you have a, an extension on Chrome or on your phone and you, you put it in pocket. And then if, whenever I have like a couple of hours free on like a Sunday afternoon or something, I'll sit down and read the long form stories that I've been uh, sharing. But I think I'm a dying breed <laughs> in, that, in that respect. Yeah. You, you mean you're not a voracious consumer of uh, Fox News? I find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I you know, I honestly don't at this point understand the attraction of or why anybody bothers with cable news to be frank i mean it's i've never i've never thought it was particularly a good source of information it's so politicized now it's so opinionated it just seems like a total waste of time to me like i i just i don't i don't watch fox i don't watch nbc i don't watch cnn the only time i watch mm-hmm. those shows is if i'm in an airport like literally mm-hmm. you know when the big screens are on like i would never purposefully sit down and watch any of those shows personally I, n- I never fully realized the need for independent media, and I, I have an entertainment background, so I really only mm-hmm. started podcasting about three years ago. But till the current era, when I realized, oh, like like what Reveal does or what we do here at Forensic News, it's like I, I really never thought about. It. I was like, oh, there's there can be people with more than like three opinions. There's actually like a. <laughs> it sounds so right. dumb, but it, it's true. Right. Well, I've had a weird career because my whole career, pretty much, I mean, I spent like I spent a year at a weekly newspaper. But other than that, I've worked for nonprofits. So I've I've never worked for. Well, I I tell a lie. I think I think PRI. I don't know whether PRI is a nonprofit or a for profit. So I better be careful with that. But I mean, I've always like I worked for Voice of San Diego, which is one of the first you know, online investigative only, um, not investigative only, but online nonprofit news sources, one of the first big ones in the States. And I worked for them for like eight years. And then I went from there to freelancing for an organization called Global Post. And then I went to PRI. And then I went, now I'm working for the Center for Investigative Reporting, which is also nonprofit. So I'm very lucky to have never been in a you know, opinionated, polarized. I mean, it's opinionated, but it's not polarized. You know, I've never, I've never felt the pressure. Like I've got to conform to the overall political viewpoint of the organization I'm working for, which is, you know, I think I'm kind of lucky as a journalist, like 15 years into my career in that respect and never have been put in that situation. Right. Like my thoughts on that are as someone who came from basically a uh, entertainer, like that's what I do. I'm a comedian and uh, obviously uh, into other things now. But when I watch that kind of thing going on on news, I always find myself thinking, why don't you just, I don't mean this even in any kind of critical way. Why don't you just come out to Hollywood? I mean, that's, you, if you want to be a star, mm-hmm. that's, 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 com- that's a completely, as with any career in life, that's totally valid. But a lot of people seem to be confusing things like you're, you work, you're on the White House lawn reporting, but you seem like you really just want to be a, a personality. And those, they're not right. really the same thing. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, you know, what's always mind boggling to me, just like absolutely astonishing is how much these people get paid, like how much the talking heads get paid. Like when I when I hear like how much, 
you know, Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or, you know, the other ones on, on NBC, like how much they're getting, it's like millions and millions of dollars a year. And from my background is like always working for like, you know, pretty scrappy, pretty badly funded, you know, sort of getting by year to year limping on, you know, nonprofit news organizations. But that at the same time, I think are doing work that's so much more valuable and so much more, you know, kind of just like wholesome and decent work. Like, it's extraordinary to me. It's like, you know, what you're telling me that, that Sean Hannity's like salary would fund, you know, ProPublica for a year. That's yeah. insane. When you look at the value that, you know, that Sean Hannity brings the the news atmosphere as opposed to ProPublica. Like, that's absolutely crazy to me. And that doesn't even include the um, the hidden money in the, the uh, apartment buildings in Georgia. But we could we could get into that, <laughs> right. the, uh, the real right. estate. Uh, we'll get into that. But, if hey, if you are listening right now, uh, go ahead and Google what I just said. There's some There was some interesting reporting on that about uh, uh, Mr. Hannity's uh, real estate investments that I, I highly recommend. Um, I'll have to do the same because I try to ignore anything with Hannity's name in it whenever I can. So, yeah, I haven't heard about that. Let's let's talk about your Facebook reporting. It was a massive, a three. Well, let me get this straight. This story took a, a year of reporting. Do I have that correct? Yeah, about a year to report. You know, write, edit, do the podcast, like put everything together. Yeah, it was about about a year start to finish. Just to give people a little background, so it's a three-part series, and I've actually seen one follow-up since then, um, but it's about Facebook and police officers who are members of, um, well, well why, don't, why don't you tell us about the series? That'd be the best thing, I think. Yeah, so, so the way I like to get into it is, is to sort of start from the beginning, which is that about, you know, I guess a year and a half ago now, because the story's been out for a few months, um, my editor then managing editor came to me and said like let's do something about the connections between extremist groups white supremacists primarily and law enforcement i was like yeah that's a great story like do you have a tip do you have a lead she's like no we don't have any tips we don't we don't have any you know anything other than like a sort of a a, a kernel of an idea that we should do something about this and i was like well okay fair enough yeah that sounds like something we should do something about so I went and researched like what's been done, what's the journalism that's been done connecting, you know, the world of law enforcement to the world of extremism. And there was quite a lot of good stuff out there, but most of it was kind of retrospective. It was like these police officers in Louisiana were found to be members of the KKK and the police busted them. You know, mm -hmm. what I really wanted to do was to do an investigation that like proactively in real time identified people who were interested in, in these ideas and involved in these worlds. And my initial concept was I knew that there were lists of names kind of floating around the Internet that had either been hacked or leaked of two like different groups. So I knew that there were lists of police officers out there. I knew that I could file records requests and get like names of police officers from departments. But I also knew that there were lists of like organizations like the League of the South, you know, which is a racist organization um, where their membership roles had been leaked as well. And so my initial concept was like, if I can just go out and get as many of those different lists as I can, I can give them to our data guys and we can put them in a spreadsheet and we can just cross reference them and see, you know, who is, do we have any names that are on both of the lists? And if so, can we, can we identify them and, and, and figure out whether these people are extremists? So in the course of like, like 
basically, you know, that's, that's the idea I came to my editor with. And I was like, she was like, yeah, great. Like, go and start finding those lists and collecting them. And in the course of doing that, I read about this extraordinary academic called Megan Squire, who works out of Elon University in North Carolina. And she's a computer science professor. And what, what Megan had been doing was for years, she had been monitoring Facebook and she'd been monitoring extremist groups on Facebook. And for those of you who are thinking like, oh, who, who does this stuff on Facebook? Like it happens less and less now. But Charlottesville, for example, was, you know, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville was organized initially in a Facebook group, you know. So and that was actually what had gotten um, Megan interested in this. And so I called Megan and I was like, hey, do you have any lists for me? And she was like, sure, I've got these lists. And I was like, just out of interest, like, how, what do you do? And she, how do you, how do you monitor these sites? And she told me something pretty extraordinary, which is that she was able to go into Facebook's API, into Facebook's data, and plug in the name of a group that she was interested in. Let's say, like, you know, neo-Nazis of Portland or something, right? Which, you know, isn't a group, but something like that. And she would then get back a list of all the Facebook profiles that were members of that group. And here's the kicker. She would get back a list of members, even if the group was a secret or closed group, which was kind of mind blowing to me. I was like, wow, that's crazy. So she had already built a database of about 1200 like closed extremist Facebook groups that she was monitoring. She was like, look, I can send you guys that data. I can send you the names or you can, or you can do this. You can go to Facebook and you can put in these names of the groups. Well, I literally hung up the phone with Megan and about 10 minutes later, I think I was cooking dinner or something. And I was like, hold on a minute. Like if you can get the names of secret extremist groups, you can get the names of any group. And that means you can get the names of police groups and people who are interested in police stuff. And so I called Megan back and I was like, could I do that? She's like, absolutely (laughs) you could, you know? So what, what we then did, was I went and plugged, I went through Facebook, we did a a sort of a keyword search of Facebook groups, and we came up with a list of about 250 uh, police groups, things like, you know, friends of the LAPD or something like that. And we went through the same exercise that Megan had done, and that we sent these names of these groups to Facebook's API. The API spits out like millions of names um, of Facebook, you know, of, of the members of these groups. And so now we have a huge long list of people who are in extremist groups and a huge long list of people who are in like police groups. We put all of that in a spreadsheet and we basically just said like, we ran a search and was like, we want to know who's in at least one extremist group and in at least one police group. And we got 14,000 hits of, uh, of, of police officers. So sorry for the like rambling long explanation. It's not like, rambling that's, at all. That's how this, that's how this kind of all came about. And that's how we ended up with, you know, we ended up with a list of, of 14,000 um, possible extremist cops. And then what? I can carry on and tell you what happened next if you want. <laughs> all I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The only thing I was going to say was that 14,000, when I saw that, it, it, it even had its, its sort of its own line devoted to it on the page because mm-hmm. it really does kind of, you just kind of look at that and your, uh, your heart kind of sinks. You're like, oh, 14,000. And that's anyway, mm-hmm. go ahead. Uh, please uh, tell us more about the story. So so if you can imagine, I now have a list of 14,000 people in a database who we know are members of at least one 
like extremist group and at least one police group. Now, the challenge is now, how do you find the cops in those 14,000? Obviously, there are, you know, probably a decent amount, but how do you find them? Because the main problem was the members of the police groups, like people join groups like Friends of the LAPD for all sorts of reasons. You know, maybe your spouse Mm -hmm. is a cop. Maybe you're a retired cop. Maybe Mm -hmm. you're, you know, boyfriend's a cop, you know, like there's all sorts of reasons to join that group. And so what I literally had to do was start looking at those, start wading through those 14,000 like hits and looking at individual Facebook profiles. So let's say I've got Joe Smith. I know Joe Smith is a member of like, you know, an Oath Keepers group in like, let's stick with Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. I also know that Joe Smith is a member of the Friends of the LAPD. What I don't know is, is Joe Smith a cop, you know? Mm -hmm. So I have to look at Joe Smith's Facebook page. I go through his photos, was normally how I did it. Now, occasionally Joe Smith might have written, I am a police officer with the LAPD, in which case (laughs) it's easy. You know, then I've identified someone who is a a police officer. In other cases, though, I had to go through the... um, Oftentimes I had to go through photos and what was the key thing for me was finding photos of police officers in their uniforms. Hmm. And once I had that, once I had a photo of somebody in a uniform, then it was probably pretty likely that they were a cop. So what I basically did was started with this pile of like 14,000 and started working my way through and there were various like things I did to sort of make life easier for myself. And I'll give you one example, like, Hmm. In amongst the police groups, the 250 or so police groups that we, we had got the memberships of, there was a subset of groups of about 30 groups where in order to join the group, the administrator required you, the administrators of the group on Facebook would require you to send them a copy of your ID, of your police ID. And this was because these groups wanted to specifically be for police officers, right? So they basically said, if you want to join our group, you're going to send us a copy of your police issued ID and we'll let you in. Now, makes sense that those were the ones that I started with because they were the ones that were most likely to have police officers in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the long and the short of it is I spent four months losing my mind, like <laughs> sitting in front of Facebook for literally like 10 hours a day looking at, I mean, you have to understand, like I'm looking at terrible Facebook pages. I'm looking at just the worst, you know, dregs of the meme war and just like, yeah terrible photos of like i don't know just everything from like racism to anti-semitism to you know just hate just like non-stop hate was what i was looking at um you know but eventually i started to find cops and so i i looked through and it wasn't just me we had i had some help from other members of the reveal team um and um some some staffers at the new york times as well who were initially helping us with this project And we start finding cops and like putting them in a list and we got to 400 and I just went to my editors and I said, look, we've got 400, you know, I could, I could do this for years. I could go through these names for the next like five years. And I, I need a vacation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I can't do this. Like I can't physically do this. And we tried automating it in whatever way we could, but there's, there's simply no way of automating that. Like and you have to like, I would be going off on down rabbit holes. Like I would, I would find, I would look at someone's page and I'd say, right. And their page might be locked down. I'd say, right. 
I'm pretty sure this guy's a cop, but you know, I'm getting a feeling that I don't have any photos of him. So then I'd go look at his family members' Facebook pages, which are less locked down, and maybe I'd find one photo of mm-hmm. him in a uniform. But then I wouldn't know what department it was, right? So then I had to, I'd figure out from his Facebook, from his family members' Facebook, like what town is this guy in? And then I'd Google all the different police departments in and around that town, all the police, sheriff's departments, all the LEOs, and look at their uniforms. And like, that's how I was identifying some people, you know, like I finally hit on it. I remember in one case, I actually ended up calling a local department and saying, look, I can't figure out who this guy works for. If I blur out his face and send you a photo, can you tell me what uniform this is? And that was how I ended up identifying <laughs> one of the people. But, you know, in some cases, this took like 20 seconds. In some cases, it took like three or four hours of work. And yeah, we, we settled on 400. I was like, I think that's enough to show that this is an issue, that this is a problem. I noticed that. And I, and I, so I, I was able to sort of just extrapolate. I, th- that's fascinating to hear. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh, I can tell that due to the variety of factors that you just mentioned, they had to focus. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this could be far bigger in numbers than than maybe I might realize, but you had to focus on that that select group of people. This could be, who knows? Who knows how many? Uh, that, that's the big takeaway. Like The big takeaway that I want everyone to really kind of cement in their mind is like, I didn't look at everybody on the internet and everybody on Facebook and figure out, oh, there are 400 bad cops. Like, that's that. You know, like, I probably looked at, I estimate, around 2,000 of the Facebook profiles on my list. So 12,000 of them I didn't even look at, you know. So there's no doubt in my mind that there are thousands more police officers who are legit police officers who are members of extremist closed groups and they were probably doing you know, really questionable stuff on Facebook, even more questionable than what we found. Let's talk about that. What were these What were these uh, police officers talking about, engaging in? What did you see in, uh, in one or two groups that just stood out in your mind? Just give us, uh, if you could, just kind of a picture of it. Yes, I will say it, it did run the gamut. Like it ran the gamut from someone who's just a member of a group. I couldn't, well, I, I have to kind of backtrack and, and, and just fill in one other part of this, which is once I had my 400 cops, my next stage was I, I, I and several other members of Reveal joined as many closed group, as many of the extremist closed groups as we could. And we did this totally above board. We, we did create new Facebook accounts, but we used our real names because we didn't want to use our personal Facebooks, you know. Sure. So we used, we used our, our real names on, and, and photographs of ourselves. And then we joined, I, you know, several dozen of these closed groups. A lot of them would not let us in. So I bottom line, like I couldn't see whether a lot of these police officers were just members of the groups, whether they were participating, whether they were posting hateful stuff in there. But in some instances I did, I was able to get into the group and then inside the group I could search for this police officer. And in several instances I found, you know, police officers posting content that was racist, content that was anti-Muslim, Islamophobic content that was, you know, really violently like anti-woman, uh, homophobic, transphobic, um, pretty much every kind of, you know, taste of, of, of hatred that you can think of. I found uh, police officers either 
like commenting on, you know, memes and posts that other people had done or, you know, themselves posting stuff that was uh, that was, you know, really, really questionable and in bad taste. Yeah, the article, the uh, the series rather is really divided into three types of uh, of hate. Uh, the, the as I recall, the first one is um, it's misogynistic and racist. And then there were uh, why don't you tell us about the part two, which was a. Uh, police officers who are members of militia groups. That was very uh, frightening. Yeah, so as, as we were going through this, we realized, you know, what we have in terms of extremism are different types of extremism, as you point out. You know, so we have the kind of the alt-right, the classic white supremacists, and then we have these groups that are that are militia groups. And, and for those people who don't know about militia groups, um, essentially these are groups that are founded on conspiracy theories. They're founded on the idea. They mainly grew up, I mean, the, the, the militia movement has a long and storied history that I go through, in, that I go into in the piece. But in the modern era, in the recent era, they're founded on primarily on the idea that Barack Obama was planning to take away everybody's guns and was going to, you know, it was going to lead to some sort of police state with the sort of institution of um, like concentration camps of everyday Americans, basically. Like that's what the Oath Keepers, which is the biggest militia group in the country, and the three percenters, they're all based on this theory that basically the government is going to take over and seek to control everybody's lives. And mixed in with that conspiracy theory, where you find one conspiracy theory I found, you know, you normally have several others glomming on, you also have a huge dose of like anti-immigrant sen- uh, sentiment, a huge dose of anti-Muslim se- sentiment and anti-Jewish sentiment. Like all of those things kind of run together. So, yeah. So, so the second story, the first story that I did was just about the, the overall project and the police officers we found, the racist stuff that we found people saying, homophobic stuff we found people saying, and then we we carved off a second story that specifically told, you know is is aimed as a sort of an explainer of what the militia movement is and then pointing out look we found i think it was like 150 police officers who were in um in what are essentially anti-government militia groups mm-hmm. and then we examined like well, why is that a problem and you know it's a problem because when you have police officers who are members who've sort of pledged allegiance to an organization that is not their own law enforcement organization, let's say you've got a police officer who's an oath keeper, what happens when that police officer is ordered to investigate or to arrest another oath keeper? You know, like is, is who, who does their allegiance, you know, where does their allegiance lie? Um, And, you know, what inside tactical, technological, you know, informational intelligence information are police officers passing to organizations like the Oath Keepers? There's all sorts of like really important questions to be asked there. So that, that was our second story. That was the most disturbing because while it is obviously disturbing if a police officer is a extreme or is a racist or any of those other things, being a, being a member of a armed group that fundamentally does not believe in really the ideals of this country to me, stood out as the most dangerous. And in fact, it reminded me of, it's like in LA, like because of the LAPD's history and to their credit, they've done a lot to clean it up because of the history of gang members that infiltrated it. They, you know, if you look at the LAPD application, there's, there's 
they've definitely made a huge effort. Uh, they check tattoos and things, but this is mm-hmm. the Oath Keepers are just another type of gang. And mm-hmm. the idea that they could be infiltrating a police department is absolutely shocking. Uh, I yeah. don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the militia movement, you know, is one of, if not the biggest sort of domestic terrorism, potential domestic terrorism threat facing the United States today. I think they're running a close race with like, you know, the the young um, disaffected, like, you know, usually white males who've mm-hmm. been radicalized on places like 8chan and 4chan and go out and shoot people. Uh, and I think we'll probably find out that the shooting today in, in, in LA was connected to that world, but, but I yeah. digress. I, you know, the, the Oath Keepers, the militias, they're heavily armed, they're heavily organized, they're really virulently passionate, they're massive Trump supporters, and, you know, if there is one, one story that just hasn't gotten enough attention is that if there is an impeachment of the president, or even if President Trump just loses the next election by a close margin, you have a, you know, a, a, you know, significant slice of the American population that is indoctrinated in this world of conspiracy and hate and that is organized and that has a lot of guns and who are willing to sort of fight to the teeth to defend their kind of radical ideas. And I think people should be really worried about them and really paying attention to them. And I also found sort of, I guess, I don't know if the word is ironic, but of, of all the people who should also be disturbed by this are police officers, the especially the, obviously the good ones. And the, there's nothing more frightening. I don't know if you specifically use the phrase sovereign citizen, but that particular group, mm-hmm. as, as, as you know, has killed police officers. And mm-hmm. I, it just seemed like if I was a cop, I'd be, I, I would want to know if the guy in the, at the locker next to me suiting up for, you know, the, a day of work is a, is an oath keeper. I mean, that's absolutely frightening. Mm-hmm. I put it down primarily to ignorance and, and no disrespect to police officers. Sure. I, I was a beat reporter who, who covered, you know, law enforcement in, in San Diego for several years. And I got a lot of good friends who are police officers and a lot of, you know, my brother-in-law is a, a, a sergeant. You know, I've got, I've got mm. no problem with, with law enforcement at all. Mm. But I agree. I mean, I think if, if you're in law enforcement, you're in it for the right reasons, then you should be concerned about this. But I don't think that the... I don't think the lack of concern evidenced by the law enforcement agencies that I spoke to, uh, of which there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of like, well, we don't really care about this and we're not going to do anything about this. I put it down to just pure, you know, uh, lack of knowledge and ignorance. Like they don't, they don't understand what the militia movement is. They don't understand who the Oath Keepers are. They don't understand what they're doing. They think that they're just some sort of, you know, benevolent fraternal organization like the, the you know, the moose or something like that. Like they right. don't get it. And um, I think they really need to work to educate themselves on that. And I think that that's indicative of the bigger problem with intelligence and and, and uh, law enforcement in this country is that, that it's just not well enough suited and, and, and educated enough to understand the threat from you know, the alt-right, the threat from, um, you know, to a certain extent, Antifa, um, the threat from these kind of non-traditional, um, not-your-father's-KKK-type organizations. Like, they just, they don't, they don't get it, and they need to get better at it. 
And I think the feds are starting to figure it out slowly but surely. But, you know, however many mass shootings later, they're starting to realize that, hey, you know, places like 8chan are probably where they should be looking and taking a look. But right. um, but your everyday police department is years behind. You know, they, 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 they don't understand these worlds. And so they give you kind of blank stares, you know. Yeah, it seems to be... Uh... We you know, we had uh, Ken Ken Klippenstein on this show from the Young Turks, mm. uh, and we talked about the, uh, the an unfortunate fact that his reporting on the FBI focusing on what they what they called black identity extremists when mm. everyone else uh, yourself we all seem to agree that the it's it's these people we're talking about now who are the most dangerous. Any I know you already addressed this, but do you have any thoughts on why a the FBI, which seems to be able to do a lot of things, would not focus on what's so obviously right in front of them. Uh, any thoughts? I think it's well. So, so I think it's pretty clear, and I think it comes from the fact that you know the the FBI, particularly, and law enforcement in general, has this kind of blanket rule that we do not investigate people based on their ideology, right? Which you know isn't true. Right. I mean, it's just not true. But what they do is they apply it selectively. Right. So, you know, the, the FBI, for example, was quite happy to infiltrate and, um, you know, and monitor like mosques in New York City in the wake of 9-11. Um, you know, but but it is whenever they're called upon to or questioned as to why they're not monitoring white supremacists and not monitoring some of these other groups, their answer is always, well, we don't monitor based on ideology. We only ever do it based on, you know, actual threats of violence. And so, like, that's that's one reason. That's just kind of this arbitrary, like, line that they can choose which side they want to stand on. Um, but I, I think it's partly that, but I think it's also that, you know, to be fair, um, the phenomenon of, um, you know, young, white, disaffected, like, alt-right type, you know, men going out and shooting people isn't that old. It hasn't been happening for that long, you know? And I would say, I mean, the amount of, like, utter crap that I read online and you know in 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 newspapers in major newspapers about these movements where they just don't understand what's going on and then the number of people like i mean ken's one of them ken's a good guy and, and he understands it like the number of people who actually understand this world and are actually paying attention to it is so small that it's kind of you know that's in the media so it's kind of not surprising to me that that the the law enforcement people haven't figured it out yet too either they'll get there by the time they mm. get there they, you know the, the extremists will have moved on to something else yeah right you know, but they're, you know but that i i do think they're working on it it's just going to take some time yeah and i like i just want to be clear too like i a lot of i've got a lot of friends who are cops some of them i grew up with and uh, they go out and do a, a great job and an important job and it's not uh it's not about that it's about just being honest about this this uh problem I, you know, just wanted to put that out there. And there was something else I had, which I just, of course, blanked on. But I think it was, well, we, um, yeah, go ahead. We, you mentioned a follow-up that we did. And one important, the one important follow-up that we did to this story was basically a kind of a, almost like a how-to guide for what can police departments do to identify this problem and to identify this issue. And so we talked to a lot of departments. We talked to people who train police departments and, you know, one thing that we talked to, like, sociologists, and one thing one academic said to me that really, really stuck out to me is, like, 
you know, if you look at if you look at your kind of classic, like straight out of the academy police officer, right? Mm. So they might be from suburbia. They might be, you know, from from a nice, you know, a kind of a a low crime kind of part of town. And suddenly they're shoved into, like, you know, in in many cases, like the worst of the worst. Like they're shoved into the areas of high crime. They're shoved into, you know, they're faced with like horrific stuff every every day, day in day out. It's an incredibly. You you mentioned the good work that police do, and I and and that's one part of it. But it's also a tremendously difficult and harrowing job to do. You know, mm-hmm. and the people that are doing that job, particularly if they're not coming from a harrowing background or from a difficult, you know, challenged neighborhood are exactly the sort of people who are the most susceptible to conspiracy theories and to, you know, this kind of, uh, this kind of extremist ideology. Like, let's say, let's take that example of that kid who's come out of like a nice suburb, you know, a nice suburb, and they're suddenly thrown into, you know, a really, you know, dangerous, crime-ridden part of town. And, you know, let's say they they see a lot of, like, people of color committing crime, for example, right? And someone comes along and says, well, that's because of their race. That's because of, that's because of, like, the color of their skin. Like, even if they've never entertained that idea in their lives before, like, that's a very vulnerable point in their life for them to be given and fed an idea like that, you know? So mm-hmm. my point is, like, it's it's incumbent upon police departments. It's incumbent upon, and we say this in our story and try to lay out how police departments can do this. Like, police departments should be concerned about this from, like, a mental health perspective, you know, from an... From a, from a vulnerability perspective, like you're, you're putting young men and women in extremely challenging situations and you need to make sure that, you know, they're not being led down some rabbit hole by a bunch of online extremists because like they clearly are in some cases as our reporting shows. You really highlighted that. And that was one thing that I had never thought about that I took away from it. I, it never occurred to me that because of the nature of the job, and as you said, it's a harrowing job that a police officer could be more could be more susceptible to being radicalized. That's not that's something I've actually never never thought about or even read anywhere else. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it either, you know. And it wasn't until the, the I think it was a sociologist that I spoke, spoke to brought it up, and I was like, that's a really compelling and, and important point, you know. I mean, there's a reason why. Like high school students, for example, are very susceptible because they're creating their worldview, you know. And when you're talking about someone who's fresh out of the academy, they're not that far out of high school in some cases, you know. So they're still developing their worldview. They're still developing their ideas. And, and you know, they're extremely susceptible to what in some cases can be very, like, comforting, simplistic ideologies that, that sort of seem to make sense if you don't, you know, actually do any research into them, you know? From what I've read, uh, this may be part of the problem. So these departments do, they'll spend uh, a huge amount of time, or at least the good ones, on a background investigation before you get in. But like a lot of jobs, once you're in, it's kind of like, that's that's what we're talking about here. Like, I'm sure they can screen out a lot of people, well, maybe beforehand, but once you're in, if this process starts, that, did you have any thoughts on that aspect of this story? I mean, I do think one of the extraordinary things about our story is like how li- how few of these police departments took any action. You know, like I we 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 were 
not disappointed because I mean we put we put the reporting out and then it's up to people to do their jobs and to do stuff, you know. But I mean, as someone who's covered like public institutions and 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 people who work for for public agencies for a long time, you know, primarily in California, but, you know, across the states. I will say that one thing that we should be, I think we should be concerned about as a society is that it is just the the kind of almost utter blanket protection given to law enforcement. Mm. You know, like it's just, I mean, you know, the, the I mean, I think, I think we've known this ever since like Rodney King, right? But I mean, the, the, total complete and utter almost protection given to police officers is something that's quite extraordinary and i think something that has to change personally that's my personal view you know like you can't i I, the number of the number of times i've like read internal reports about officer involved shootings you know where police officers have like literally shot people in the back as they're running away Mm -hmm. you know and then still don't even get a slap on the wrist like that's yeah it's a harrowing job it's a difficult job i'm glad that they're doing it i'm glad somebody's willing to do it but there's got to be more accountability and i think that there should have been more accountability to some of the findings that we found when you let's highlight that when you brought this which was the most recent article i saw you brought these findings you said uh these officers are members of these virulent really hate groups and then what was the res- type of responses you got from the, from the departments? So what I did was, I'll preface this by saying what I did was, you know, before I even published a story, I wrote letters to uh, about 150 departments. And, and I took a subset of the people that we'd found. And I specifically took a subset of people who were in particularly bad groups and the people who I'd actually been able to get inside the group and see them interacting and i sent departments letters outlining with screenshots like here's what an employee your agency is doing Mm. and you know a lot of i I think more than 50 departments came back to me and said right we're going to launch an internal affairs investigation into this um one guy one detective in harris county texas was fired as a result of, of of what we found he went through you know, the whole like civil service appeal and was and was fired. Several other police officers who are really doing questionable stuff, you know, and I caught them like red handed, you know, yeah. doing really bad stuff are still working today. And I mean, mm. I'll give you an example. There's a guy at the New York Police Department um, and we found him inside several really hateful, like anti-women groups. And we found him, like at one point he posted a meme of a woman being kicked in the head by a man and posted all of this stuff about how women were awful and terrible and all the rest of it. And like, as somebody who has a family like that includes women, like, I mean, that was just like shocking to me that like there's a police officer walking around with those views. We told the NYPD about it. They did nothing about it. I mean, they investigated it and they concluded, and I quote, that the officer's actions could have been different. And that's all they said. So, wow. Yeah. That's it's kind of like one of those things you could say about anything. I could have done this differently. Yeah. It's like it's, it's a platitude. Right, right that, exactly, yeah. Th- that department settles, just from all the years I've followed this, 
they settle so many lawsuits about this. It's actually, it's every year, it's some insane amount of money. It's like, it, it almost is like to them the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's absolutely. I don't know how to compare that to other cities, but just as someone who grew up in grew up in northern New Jersey and I've you know read the paper there all my life, it's like mm-hmm. it's absolutely insane. Uh, I mean, I guess so. I mean, my devil's advocate view would be: look, I mean, you've got you've got cops being put into high stress situations. Mm-hmm. You've got thousands of cops, first of all, you know, being put into high stress situations, and people are going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one thing, you know, I. I, it's it's horrible and it's sad and it's terrible that people get shot by mistake by police mm. officers. But yeah. I mean, oftentimes, like that's understandable given the stress of the situation and given what's going on. Mm. What I think is less understandable and is more just kind of like blanket, like here it is, is like what somebody is choosing to do with their social media in their spare time you know, and, and they are going out and, and presenting themselves on the one hand as a member of the police department, and on the other hand, they're going online and posting, you know, racist, homophobic, anti-woman, anti-trans stuff. Like, there's no excuse for that. Like, there's no, nobody's holding, nobody's, they're not, they're not running down an alleyway in a high-stress right. situation. They're sitting in front of their computer or on their phone, you know, so that's not excusable. So, I get that police departments have to pay out compensation when police officers make mistakes and, you know, the good departments try to rectify that as much as they can with as much training and everything else. But like mm. when it comes to something like this, like I don't think there's, there's any good excuse for what these guys were doing. Also, I can't, I can't remember if this was in the article, but it was just something I thought about. Let's say that um, that officer you just you referred to uh, the I think NYPD. So. Let's say he makes a good arrest of a, a dangerous criminal. If I was that criminal's defense attorney and I found your reporting, that'd be Exhibit A. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it will be if it hasn't already. I you, mean, I think that there's probably departments that have already done that. Yeah. Or, or so I, that attorneys have already done that or will do that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You pull that up and then uh, someone who's potentially guilty uh, goes free. I, gee, I would think they would care about that if, if nothing else. Uh, don't. Don't you think? Absolutely. And and to be clear, like, I don't think any of these departments sort of, you know, went to their officers and gave them a pat on the back and said, <laughs> carry on. You know, I think I think they probably went to them and said, you need to, like, delete your Facebook, like, yesterday. Like, do that. But, yeah. you know, I'm talking in terms of, like, rectifying the situation. Look, I'm sorry, but if somebody is a member of several different anti-woman groups, is posting violent, horrible comments about women, like that's not somebody who I want to be a police officer. And I don't think departments should want that person to be a police officer, quite apart from the fact that his name is now in a story associated with that action, you know, and for the reasons you just mentioned, defense attorneys can pull that up and use it against them. Like quite apart from that, like you, they should at the very least be pulling that officer out and doing some serious psychological evaluation and figuring out what's going on, you know? Yeah, because I'm sure if I was, I'm sure that what they would say is, I mean, I've actually heard this argued before by guys like that, which is, you know, okay, like some of them will even admit it. Okay, I have, I have these views, but when I go out there, I do the job. But the problem is, is, yeah, go ahead. No, if you want to, if you have thoughts on that. No, I mean, I heard that again and again, because I called the police, I called the police officers themselves too, Mm. you know, and so I would call them up and I'd say, right, so you're a member of this group. 
And I would get back like, oh, I'm just joking around. Oh, it's just, you know, it's, that's my personal life. It's not my professional life. Like, I leave all that behind when I go. And, like, I've heard that yes. again and again and again from people. Like, to the point where people were accusing me of, like, unfairly labeling them because they couldn't possibly actually feel that way. You know, like, it was, yeah, it's, the, the it's just a joke thing was the thing that I heard a lot. Yeah. And that's the thing is that's what <laughs> I'm sure they actually believe that because that's what by bi unconscious bias is. Like, you, mm -hmm. you might actually think that, no, I actually, I mean, that's, it's sort of absurd in a way. Like it is, it is absurd. And, and, you know, it's look, I mean, we all have biases and we all have, you know, we all have opinions. We all have, you know, there's, there's a little like dark corner of everybody's soul. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? But, yeah. but like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I I know quite a lot about social media at this point, and I know quite a lot about extremism at this point, and I know that the sort of people who frequent, who go out of their way to frequent, like, closed, hateful groups on Facebook, and that's where they spend their spare time, like, those aren't, that's not just run-of-the-mill, like, you know, sort of ingrained, like, bias. Like, that's, that's an express, overt interest in a worldview that you want to know more about. And that's what I think is so worrying about our findings is like that so many of these guys were just like going out and trying to find this stuff, you know? Well, I was going to ask you something. Are, are you familiar with the NYPD rant? Have you heard of that? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I, I think years ago, Remind me what it is, and I, I, I might spark some memories. The reason I brought that up, I just was thinking about it when I read your story. That was, to the best of my knowledge, the original or the, the predecessor for what we're talking about. It was a, a, an old school message board where, and I used to read it because as someone who sort of had like, like a lifelong interest in criminal justice, there was some interesting mm. stuff there, police tactics, just stuff I found very interesting. But it's fascinating because if anyone listening, if if you go check it out, as far as I know, it's still a thing. It's mm -hmm. exactly like what you're talking about. It's just migrated to Facebook, but the same virulent views. Uh, not everybody on there, but I don't know. I was just mm -hmm. it, I was just curious if that had ever come up. It's uh, that's, some that's where I've heard that's where I've heard of it before. I think someone else referenced it in in, in reference to my work. Um, yeah. yeah, I had heard of that. There's another. I mean, right after the, my stories came out, people said you've got to go take a look at like the Police One forum. Um, I actually got the same uh, tip that uh, a story that ProPublica ended up doing that was about mm. the um, the the Border Patrol. Uh, closed Facebook group where people were just saying horrendous things about immigrants and, and oh. um, you know, people dying in the desert and all sorts of things. And like, I, I was working on that story when, when ProPublica scooped me on it. So oh. yeah, there's, I, I, there's more and more of these faces. The problem is, as I just, as I described at the beginning of this like interview is it takes so much work to figure yeah. this stuff out and to, to reverse engineer it and find the yeah. police officers that it's, you know, there aren't that many organizations that are, that are, that have the resources to do it. I'm lucky enough to work for one yeah. of them. No, I think you, uh, <laughs> I think a year long investigation, you've definitely, uh, you're, you're free to take a vacation and I think move on from the subject and leave it to somebody. Uh, right. Right. Let another right. reporter sit there at night going through this type of content. Uh, right. Right. Anything else you want to yeah, – oh, what were you going to say? 
I was going to say I've had enough like hateful, you know, police talk and enough like thin blue line memes to last me a, a lifetime, I think, at this point. Yeah. Anything else you want people to take away from the story, something they need to know about this this reporting? I mean, I, we didn't we didn't mention the, the, the third story, which focused on Islamophobia. And one of the things that really struck me was whereas a lot of the police officers who were posting, let's say, racist or homophobic content, they were doing it behind the closed doors and inside what they thought was the protection of the closed group that they were inside. One thing that really struck me was the amount of overtly anti-Muslim sentiment that was being posted by police officers just on their everyday Facebook pages, just on their personal Facebook pages. Mm. Like really nasty, you know, hateful stuff. And I think that that is an issue. And in many instances, like, the people posting this stuff were from communities where, you know, there weren't a lot of, you know, Muslims and, and there wasn't a big Muslim community. But in some cases, you know, they were in places, other places where there was a, a significant Muslim population, you know. And I feel like, you know, I think it was, I think it was Megan Squire, actually, who we quote in that story is saying, like, Islamophobia, you know, anti-Muslim hatred is the last accepted form of bigotry in America. And I think that's very true. And I think that that's really, you know, that's that's really, really unfortunate and really not right. Because, you know, I personally, I, you know, I, I apart from anything else, I lived in a, in a Muslim country for, for two years. I lived in, in Indonesia for two years and lived amongst, you know, 99% Muslims and and can firsthand you know report that like the vast majority of them were just lovely, perfectly fine, perfectly lovely, perfectly ordinary you know people living their living their their lives and to to have like it be totally acceptable that just because of somebody's religion like it's okay to slander them and slur them is like for me just totally wrong and totally unacceptable and it's so prevalent on facebook and facebook is doing nothing about it and police departments seem to think it's okay and i think there's a significant portion of the american public that thinks it's okay too and and i think that that's that's really troubling and something that 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 really has to change right it's bad enough when it's just a person who holds these views a citizen and then but i think mm. really what we're talking about here is that when a person is given this type of authority and a gun and a badge and the ability, Ooh. if they want to, to wreak total havoc on your life. And again, this isn't like, this isn't about a, this isn't the way I feel about most police, but just what this we're talking about here, uh, that can have dire consequences for, for you in a personal situation. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of times, you know, police officers would argue to me, well, I have my rights as a public citizen. I have my rights, my First Amendment rights. And the simple fact is that that's just, that's just both ethically, but also legally, that's not correct. Like, that's not true. When you take an oath of office, when you take a, you know, when you, when you, when you pledge your life to serving the public, you actually, you give up a lot of your rights to, you know, just open free speech. Because at that point, you're representing an agency. And an agency is fully within its rights 
to control and say it's okay to say this it's not okay to say that and you know you're you're representative of um of our department and we're not okay with you saying this and that the 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 gap the problem as i mentioned earlier is that not enough of these departments are informed enough about like what hate speech looks like in 2019 and not enough of them seem to you know care or recognize this as a real legitimate problem and given the fact that Given the fact that bias and racism, especially in policing, is, you know, I think one of the biggest problems facing the United States, I think they need to, like, stand up to the fact and, and pay more attention to it and be more proactive about it. And when you see warning signs in people's social media and elsewhere, do something about it. You know, don't, don't wait until it's too late. And also some of those, those Facebook and memes and stuff, it's like... I just shake my head. That that is something a world I never knew existed till maybe six mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so it's so dumb too. I mean, <laughs> it's so embarrassingly, yeah. you know, just ignorant and dumb that it's like that's why. I mean, it was so brain numbing to go through those Facebook pages because you just like get so frustrated with how dumb it all is. You know, <laughs> apart from anything else. Will Carlos, it's been absolutely great having you on Counterintelligence, and uh, you're definitely going to have to come back. There's a lot more to talk about on this topic. Thank you for listening. Follow Forensic News on Twitter at Forensic Newsnet. Counterintelligence is at IntelPod. My personal account is Eric LeVay. Support Forensic News on Patreon. Subscribe to Counterintelligence everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence.